This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking to Peter LaChapelle about his book from the University of Chicago Press. It's called I'd Fight the World, A Political History of Old-Time, Hillbilly, and Country Music. In I'd Fight the World, LaChapelle traces interactions between country music and politics, beginning with two late 19th century politicians who fiddled to their supporters and ending with the 2016 election season. He demonstrates some long-standing associations between celebrity candidates, populist insurgents, outsider politics, and country music. LaChapelle also doesn't shy away from exposing the ways that racist and anti-Semitic political figures have used country music in support of their beliefs. It seems particularly timely to talk about this book as we approach the final months of the 2020 presidential campaign. So welcome, Dr. LaChapelle. Thank you for having me on, Kristen. Really appreciate it and glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about this book. It's quite interesting. How did you get uh, interested in the topic uh, in the first place? Well, that's an interesting story. Um, I actually, well, it it probably goes back to some degree to my childhood. I grew up in uh, rural Arizona. And um, one of the things that I actually wrote about in my first book, which kind of looks at the Dust Bowl migration and the music during that time period, um, was um, one of the things I talked about was my own upbringing and what brought me to this the study of this kind of music. And part of it was that every day, especially on Sundays, I would hear on the AM radio, a wide variety of musics. And, um, you know, for instance, there was a mariachi hour in the early part of the morning. Um, there was a point during the day when the, um, you would hear Apache, um, medicine, medicine men chant on the radio. And then in the afternoon, there was kind of a classic country music hour. And it always fascinated me, these different kinds of music, these different ethnic and cultural identities sort of coming together on AM radio. So I guess at a young age, that was something that really interested me. And then um, I later on uh, ended up, uh, you know, getting my um, baccalaureate degree and working as a journalist in Bakersfield, California. And there I covered um, um, a lot of things that were connected to the endpoint of the Dust Bowl migration the uh, birth of a country music industry in California. Bakersfield is sort of very well known for its uh, favorite sons, people like um, Merle Haggard and Buck Owens, and uh, its favorite daughter, Rose Maddox, um, figures who kind of shaped country music outside of Nashville and sometimes were kind of outsiders. 
And um, so it got me interested in, as I was writing that first book on the Dust Bowl migration and the way that country musicians kind of created the sense of what Oki identity or Dust Bowl identity was, right? For instance, back then, um, Californians met, they, they felt a degree of disdain towards the migrants as they were kind of uh, flooding into the state and would call them Okies because a lot of them were from Oklahoma. And um, I, I was kind of curious about how, in a lot of ways, country music became the vehicle by which people were creating a new sense of identity as they were kind of being discriminated against in this state, right? As kind of this part of this larger Southern diaspora. And um, as I was writing the book, I, I kept thinking, there's so many political issues that come up in these songs, immigration, poverty, welfare, <laughs> right? And I thought, well, has I've got to find a book. I've got to go back to my resources and find a book that talks about the connections between country music and politics, and, and especially the fact that, you know, by that point, I, I knew enough that I knew there were several figures um, who were broadcasting or performing stars who themselves had actually run for office. And I basically couldn't find much <laughs> on that. And, I, and so as I was kind of developing and finishing that book, I thought, you know what, uh, the book that I want, that I was looking for, doesn't exist. So why don't I myself write it? And that kind of led me into this project, into the, um, into the I'd Fight the World um, book project. So, um, it, so hopefully that kind of explains where I came from there. Yeah. Well, my yeah. advisor, my dissertation advisor always said to write the book you want to read. So I guess that's what you did. <laughs> yeah. And it, I'll tell you, actually, you know, when I got into the research, there were times when it was just so strange and fascinating and weird and funny just looking through, you know, old newspaper clips or looking through archival material and finding these instances of people doing things that really almost kind of shocked me, <laughs> that in some ways are very modern in the way they used kind of a populist rhetoric and were kind of using the new mediums of their day, radio and recording. But beyond that, um, things I talk about in the book that a lot of people don't think about is the, the arrival of the sound truck, which actually was very close to at least two of these um, country music uh, politicians in the early 30s. Um, these were people who were pioneering the use of radio trucks with politics, but also using music to attract crowds. And um, so, you know, it, it really... Um, there were just a number of times when, when I was kind of working on the research where, um, you know, strange things <laughs> came out of my research. And it was, it's, it's kind of entertaining, um, kind of, um, what do I want to say? Like it, 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 it um, you know, I, I couldn't believe in some ways that people hadn't really like sort of looked into this deeper because there's just some interesting, fascinating sort of anecdotes to it. Well, maybe one of the things we can start with is one of those fascinating and I think for a lot of people unknown um, connections, which is the connection between Henry Ford and old time country music. Um, I'm a musicologist. And so those of us who work in this period, you know, I've run across um, discussions of this, but I think for most people, they have no idea that Henry Ford had this whole other 
political and in this case musical interest that was has nothing to do with his car business. So maybe you can uh, take us through a little bit about that connection between Ford, his political beliefs, and old time fiddle music. Yeah, I mean, some of this goes back really to you know he he had um uh, in in uh, he had basically um run for uh, Senate in um, in Michigan. And around that time, he had also acquired um, the Dearborn Independent, which was a small newspaper. And um, he, you know, he basically lost his campaign and felt pretty embittered about the whole situation and started kind of using the Dearborn Independent to lash out at critics, at people he felt were attacking him during the campaign. And it was kind of, the, and there's a lot of debate about where Henry Ford's anti-Semitism comes from, but it seems like, I think we can, most scholars can kind of agree that it was during this time that his anti-Semitism really came to the fore. It was something noticeable. Um, so what, um, what, what's kind of interesting about this is around the same time period, <laughs> uh, within a year or two, he also starts promoting old time music and he starts out promoting um, several old time dulcimer players. Um, he inter- he promotes um, a lot of old time fiddlers and kind of as a way, and he talks about this in the press and in numerous times about how this is in many ways a way of counteracting the influence of jazz music, which to him and to his newspaper, he believed was a Jewish creation. And, um, you know, it's interesting how then what I kind of do is I follow the, both of those issues is kind of his whatever lingering political ambitions he had, which in 1923 kind of come to the fore when he starts to uh, toy around with the idea of running for president. He doesn't end up doing that, um, but there is a small uh, third party that does sort of nominate him as a potential uh, presidential candidate. Um, and I look at the, 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 the flow of his anti-Semitism campaign, which gets more and more intense and really doesn't end until about 1927 when he's sued by a farm cooperative, um, uh, official who uh, was Jewish, who felt that he had been slandered and, and ends up kind of forcing him into an agreement. Actually, I think doesn't receive a large sum of money for the, the, uh, lawsuit, but ends up kind of forcing Ford to apologize. Um, and at the same time, he's pushing this music and he's using, you know, his publicity machine and um, he's using his, um, you know, uh, his influence over the radio and his dealerships uh, to push uh, fiddling contests and to get people more interested in this kind of music. One of the, one of the kind of ramifications of this is that he starts to, um, uh, fund in Michigan in particular, old time dance uh, lessons for uh, uh, school children. And um, in some ways, uh, this sort of model of teaching young people dances, and some of them included rounds and, and uh, um, square dances. There were also waltzes and other things like that. Um, but it, it really sets the ground for the kind of square dancing that maybe some of us might have experienced in uh, junior high, you know, as it, they kind of, Ford kind of saw this as a way to teach deportment and social interaction between young boys and young girls. And 
um, as a way to kind of emphasize something that he thought was important about American culture. But what's interesting is if you kind of go, and I went through his files in the Benson Ford Center, um, you, you see that he really was um, a lot, anti-Semitism and the kind of race science of the day was really animating the way that he uh, used this music and that he was hoping that it would outreach to the American public in a way that would, um, you know, um, for him in some ways, it was a way of preserving kind of an old American Anglo-Saxon white culture um, against, you know, the, the, the negative aspects kind of coming out of jazz and that sort of thing. Well, so often country music has become kind of a shorthand for some kind of um, authenticity of American experience. And I think of several of the people that you um, profile or characters in your book have done that. Can you tell us maybe about one example you, that you think is particularly striking of a politician that, that tried to use um, country music in that way? So, you know, the issue of thinking through how um, politicians used authenticity or the authenticity connected with country music, um, you know, a figure that comes to mind is George C. Wallace, who, uh, you know, a politician from Alabama in the 1960s, um, who in a lot of ways learned most of what he did on the campaign trail from another politician named Big Jim Folsom. And Big Jim Folsom was an Alabama governor in the 1940s who had never really ventured out without his campaign band, who was who were called the Strawberry Pickers. And uh, George Wallace actually learned a lot um, helping uh, Big Jim Folsom on various campaigns. The interesting thing is that Big Jim Folsom really was, to a large degree, a racial liberal, at least within the circles of Alabama politics during that time. And um, Wallace, of course, perhaps starts out on that end of the political spectrum, but eventually ends up really siding with the segregationists, with the backlash against civil rights. Um, and interestingly enough, he continues kind of that tradition of using country music. Um, and he, you know, does develop his own campaign band, uh, Sam Smith and the Alabamians. Um, but he also goes a step further than Big Jim, which is that he hires a number of Grand Ole Opry performers to perform um, on his campaign trail. And it's interesting to kind of look through and think through all these performers, Hank Lachlan, Minnie Pearl, um, Hank Thompson. Um, there were just a number of really top-notch performers over the years that uh, Grandpa Jones that went out and performed for him and campaigned for him. And there's this interesting kind of connection that seems to develop between him and the Grand Ole Opry. And, you know, I think it's interesting. I think um, at times he's criticized for his use of country music. It's not seen as authentic. His band, for instance, performs at one point in California as part of one of his presidential campaigns. And um, the band, uh, some of the, some, one critic went to the, the, the uh, uh, rally and talked about how in inauthentic he thought the band was because they used trumpets and they were playing kind of pop country songs instead of performing, you know, kind of traditional fiddle music and that sort of thing. Um, on the other hand, though, I think he used the music to kind of push the, the idea 
that he was kind of a part of the common people, part of the salt of the earth, and that, you know, his point of view, you know, including the racist elements of it, um, were, were just a projection of what this average person, this average constituent wanted. And he tried to use that, I think, you know, in a, in a, in a very kind of, uh, you know, uh, 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 he tried to use it to, you know, push a kind of politics that was very divisive and and caused a lot of, um, uh, you know, racial tension and and may have even led to violence in some ways. So. Did any of the uh, performers that worked with him from Grand Old Opry, like Minnie Pearl and others, um, once Wallace's politics had really uh, become discredited, and I know he later, you know, sort of rehabilitated himself and, and was governor again with um, uh, with black support, but did they ever suffer any kind of backlash when um, when Wallace sort of falls out of favor and that kind of um, really vitriolic racism that he exhibited in the 60s uh, was uh, being called out? Did, did it hurt their careers? It doesn't seem like it did. And I do think that to some degree, you know, the, the, there wasn't necessarily an attempt as, you know, especially as he ran his various presidential campaigns and, and you know, became kind of increasingly racially divisive sort of figure, kind of the the focal point of American segregationist ideas, right? Um, there, there isn't. I don't. I don't necessarily see you know uh, these figures coming out and making um, a lot of uh, attempts to kind of remind the public of earlier stances or earlier endorsements. In some ways, you know, if you look at Minnie Pearl's um, autobiography, she talks about her love of politicians like. Um, Franklin Roosevelt. She doesn't mention all these years that she was out on the trail, sort of promoting George Wallace. You know, and so there's an attempt by there to, to kind of kind of create a, a legacy that maybe doesn't mention, you know, that the fact that there was this period. So let's move away from the '60s just for a moment and move back to the '30s because that's an, uh, a period of time that you spend a lot of time in the book. And this is, uh, I should mention, really an expansive book. You you cover from the 1870s to 2016, so that's a you know that's a lot of time to cover. But um, you do spend quite a bit of the book in the '30s, and you even talk about um, a persona that you identify as the hillbilly politician. So can can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, what I tried to do was look at some of the most successful figures um, who were actually performers who went out on the campaign trail. So, you know, some of these people I've talked about were either sort of amateur performers like Bob Bob Taylor or Tom Watson in the 19th century, or, you know, um, uh, figures who were traditional politicians but were closely connected their, their uh, image and legacy to country music like George Wallace. But during the 30s, there were a number of performers who actually, you know, were a lot of them had cut their teeth in broadcasting and had uh, started, uh, you know, were, were part of the recording industry. And yet, you know, decided that because of the, um, the attention that was drawn to them, that they might not have a bad chance of, of getting elected to office. And so I looked at three of these figures. So we looked at Jimmy Davis in Louisiana, who ends up being elected governor of Louisiana. He's probably most well known 
for his song, You Are My Sunshine, which, well, at least the song he popularized, there's kind of some debate about the origins of the song. Um, then you have um, in Texas, Tapio Daniel, who really was an MC announcer um, for a uh, country music, really this kind of jazzy Western swing uh, style radio program that was one of the most popular radio programs in Texas in the 30s. And he ends up getting elected first governor and then later U.S. senator. And then I also look at Roy Acuff, who is perhaps the one unsuccessful figure here, but he does run for um, governor as a Republican in Tennessee in 1948 uh, in a state really that is a very Democratic state and um, as kind of being an East Tennessee Republican in a state dominated by Western and Central Tennessee and Democrats, uh, he doesn't, doesn't stand much of a chance, but he nevertheless runs and actually does pretty well, at least compared to some of the other Republicans either before or after him. So um, what's kind of interesting about all these figures, so these are, you know, these are probably some of the most well-known country music uh, politicians. Um, but what I, I start to do is I, I look at their platforms and I analyze sort of, you know, are there any through lines here between what they were using, the kinds of politics and platforms that they were preaching um, and, you know, what in the, their use of the music. And what was kind of interesting is that um, all three of them in one way or another supported the idea and used this considerably on the campaign trail. Um, use the idea that um, there should be, you know, some form of state pension for the elderly. There should be some sort of retirement program. And um, and I go th in, in the book, I go through the various details in each state of how that sort of plays out. Um, but what's kind of interesting is then, you know, it, I started to think about this and I looked at, you know, um, records that kind of gave me some sense of what they were doing at a typical rally. And I looked at, uh, country music, you know, the country music repertoire, right? What's the canon? What are some of the most typical songs that folks are playing on the radio during this time or during live performances and that sort of thing? And I find that there's a really, there, there are just num there are just numerous songs that deal with the plight of the elderly. And so, and you, you can actually see, you know, some of these figures, Papio Daniels band plays a version of Gene Autry's uh, Silver Haired Daddy of Mine, which was a song kind of about, you know, kind of celebrating the elderly in some ways and their influence, very sentimental in some ways, kind of borrows from that 19th century sentimental parlor song tradition. And um, he's using it on the campaign then to push the fact that he wants to provide a state pension of $30 a month for elderly Texans. And, you know, so that that's one element is kind of interesting. And then um, all three of them in some way or another are set themselves up, at least initially, as um, in opposition to political machines. And so, you know, in Louisiana, obviously, you have the Huey Long machine, which by this point, Huey Long is, has been assassinated, but his political machine and legacy lives on. So when Jimmy Davis runs there, you know, he says, I'm going to bring sunshine to the state. I'm going to bring uh, transparency and I'm going to push out all this corruption that we saw with the Huey Long machine. And, uh, you know, similar, similarly in, in um, 
Tennessee, when Roy Acuff runs, he talks about the corruption of the um, boss Crump machine in Memphis and uh, Memphis and how he's going to oppose that. And and a lot of you know, and at times their bands or their their rallies will include songs that talk about this kind of urban versus rural divide and the corruption of the city and things like that. So there's an interesting kind of way that the politics and the music come together in the 1930s. Um, and then uh, the other area that they all seem to agree on to some degree was the poll tax. And um, they all oppose this in one way or another. But what's kind of interesting is I, th- my sense is that they did not oppose poll taxes in their various states because um, they wanted to, uh, you know, enlarge the franchise so African-Americans could vote. Rather, they wanted to get rid of the poll tax because they thought it was hindering poor whites from kind of fully expressing themselves in the voting booth. And um, you can kind of see, you know, both in their statements and their use of music, um, connections between that kind of style of politics. And so I, I end up calling it the hillbilly style of politics, you know, kind of emerging in the 1930s. I mean, one of the things is, you know, if you take these three figures, they have political ideologies that um, aren't necessarily lining up. And yet these three issues seem to be areas where there is a lot of congruency. And and it does make sense. I think a part of it, what it did was it forced me to look back at the country music canon of the 1930s, like what were typical songs that people were playing? What are some of the old songs that still really seem to have a lot of uh, currency and and I you know it was really fascinating to kind of chart the connection between the politics and the actual music. One of the other things that happens in the twenties and thirties is that country music develops, or they called it was of course of course called hillbilly music at that point. Hillbilly music develops a um, really substantial radio presence, um, and you talk about how that um, th- that sort of um, network of radios that play hillbilly music um, was also exploited by politicians. Can you talk a little bit about that? I found that absolutely fascinating. Well, in Texas, for instance, um, this is where I think radio networks really come in is, you know, you got Papio Daniel, and originally he's playing on a small Fort Worth station. His His band is performing, and really he's, you know, he's a businessman at heart. He he gets into this because he's the general manager of, uh, you know, of a flour mill. And um, he's kind of reluctant at first to even get into music. But as time goes on, he realizes that it's pretty successful. And then he gets more and more involved with the program, starts, you know, narrating portions of it, starts writing songs, you know, uh, gets his two sons eventually involved in his band. Um, and that ends up being his campaign band. Um and the interesting thing there is that he, um, you know, he starts to realize that the 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 fact that these networks are coming together. So um, one, he, you know, as his popularity rises, he uh, makes a pitch to get his show on the Texas Quality Network, and this eventually kind of you know links together uh, numerous stations throughout Texas that are all broadcasting the same program at the same time, at least for part of the day. And, um, you know, as he kind of moves on this, this connection with the Texas quality network 
um, which is, you know, sometimes heard in other, obviously other states, but throughout Texas, um, there's a direct connection between, you know, uh, the radio stations that he was broadcasting on through this network and his uh, success at the polls. So, um, you know, counties that did not get the show very well, especially in the South or the far West, um, he didn't do so well there, but he tended to really dominate in most of the other counties where the signal is strong. So kind of interesting how that happens. And I think at the same time, you've got, you've got, you know, these are sort of regional networks, but you've got the national networks, the NBC Red, NBC Blue, um, you know, big, big radio networks and they're they're launching their uh barn dances which are the national barn dance in chicago and on blue and then in uh tennessee you have the grand Ole what becomes the grand Ole opry and um these are reaching sort of larger and larger audiences now because there's a, a great deal of you know corporate interest in these two programs um politics are kind of kept to a minimum but there are times when there is a little spillover, I think. You know, one of the things, I mean, on the other end of the, the spectrum is one of the figures I looked at is uh, Senator Glenn Taylor from Idaho. And he's broadcasting on a very small radio station in southern Idaho. But it helps him, right, when his political career, because he's really from the north part of the state, which tends to be more liberal and, and is tend to be more reflect the mining industry. Um, he moves to the south part of the state and starts broadcasting down there because he can reach farmers and and, and a part of the state that's a little more conservative with his music and, uh, you know, ends up eventually getting elected to U.S. senator. So he's kind of the example of a small network um, where his son and, and he, his son actually was one of his performers in his band, um, were able to kind of bend the rules. I mean, first of all, if we look back at the uh, Federal Radio Commission or what becomes the FCC, the rules initially about combining politics and uh, broadcasting were not too strict, <laughs> but as time moves on, they do get stricter. So, uh, you know, in this case, uh, Taylor gets good at um, kind of bending the rules a little bit. So he has his son come on the radio explaining as kind of a, a public service announcement how one should go about voting, meaning when you go in, you know, go into the booth, what you should be doing. And of course, it's this, this cute little kid. Um, who's just saying a bunch of very sentimental songs over the radio. And then at the end, you know, um, obviously the audience by this point knows that his father is running for office. At the end, he says, make sure you vote right, right? And kind of implying that not only are you voting correctly, but that you're voting for his father, <laughs> right? So interesting kind of the way that, you know, people kind of bend the rules in these smaller networks where, maybe the, the kind of power of the federal government and the corporations are not so strong. Uh, you know, nevertheless, I think it's interesting that one of the reasons that Roy Acuff decides to run is because the sitting governor at that point um, had criticized him for, uh, you know, kind of making uh, Tennessee seem like the hillbilly capital of the world. And, um, you know, he gets angry about this and decides, well, I'm going to try to unseat him in the next election. And so kind of interesting how, you know, his prominence and his his role as a host, at least on one segment of the Grand Ole Opry, the sort of national broadcast, um, you know, kind of lead him into the political direction. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. 
The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm glad you brought up Glenn Taylor because he's a figure that I had not heard of before, but I thought was quite interesting. And you argue there that the way that he handled his celebrity and used it to further his political career is sort of a model for how other celebrity politicians um, uh, later also tried to do the same thing. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as being groundbreaking about what Taylor does? Well, I think one of the things, I mean, in some ways, um, <laughs> what's groundbreaking is he's the he's one figure in, in my book that really comes from a, a much more of a left, maybe social democratic political position. And, you know, a lot of the figures I talk about maybe dabble in a variety of, of types of kind of populist politics or pension politics or politics that do do maybe support, you know, some elements of kind of the social safety network. But Glenn Taylor comes from a more stridently kind of left-wing tradition. And I think what's interesting about him and, and, and what I follow through his career is, you know, how he first establishes himself in the state through his music, first kind of traveling along with the kind of vaudeville troupe that also plays hillbilly music and, and uh, you know, kind of how he initially kind of experiments with jazz and then realizes that that's not going to pull in. Uh, audiences at the barn dances that he wants to kind of run after his performances to sort of, you know, uh, make more money. Um, and so he, he goes more in that direction of, of kind of trying to learn instruments and hiring musicians who can play more of what, the, what the time they called hillbilly music. Um, and, and, and he combines it with a very stridently kind of left-wing politics. Um, he, a lot of his ideology comes out of, um, the writings of uh, someone you might be familiar with if you use uh, razors, which is uh, King Camp Gillette, right? He was the founder of the corporation that what we know of today as Gillette. And um, he, um, you know, wrote several books um, at the end of the 19th century about, and in, into the 20th century, about um, uh, kind of transforming the American um, economic system and he kind of believed that we could create this sort of uh, one world corporation um, where everyone would be a stockholder that would kind of in some ways uh, be lead to this sort of almost socialist utopian existence. We, we would, according to one of his books, we would all be moving to the Niagara Falls area and uh, living in these skyscrapers that would have automatically conveyor belt delivered meals. And um, because we could more efficiently pool our resources by kind of combining technology and sharing resources and not focusing on ownership and these kinds of things. So it was a strange kind of combination of things. But um, Taylor read this book as a young man, kind of just by chance. He pulled it off of a relative's bookshelf and was just overblown with kind of the ideas and the ideas that you could reshape society and almost in this kind of science fiction kind of way. Um, you know, part of the reason they were going to operate out on Niagara was they were going to use the, uh, the, the flow of water to operate large hydroelectric, um, you know, apparatuses that would then, uh, you know, provide cheap and, and, and very easily accessible electric power. 
So, um, you know, this, this I can kind of imagine him as kind of this young man in, in Idaho who had lived through some really tough times. He talks in some of his letters about uh, eating his fair share of jackrabbits for dinner and things like that um, as, you know, being uh, very influenced by this. And so, it, it you know, certainly that kind of idea of a better society of maybe a, almost a utopian society starts to infect his politics. And um, as time goes on, he gets uh, better as a politician and in some ways doesn't overemphasize the Gillette material because he realizes it's a liability when people go to vote for him or it's a liability when he tries to get newspaper endorsements. Um, but, you know, he kind of sees that his his music is a way of kind of bridging the worlds between this this kind of like you know, hopeful future and the world that his constituents are living in. And he does other things. He goes on a number of equestrian uh, jaunts. He, he he buys a horse and travels throughout the state, um, kind of documenting his travels as he goes because he wants to meet the real constituents, the real Idahoans, right? And um, he sends dispatches out to the Associated Press as he moves through the state, which other papers throughout the country start to pick up, and it kind of helps build sort of a, more of a national reputation. Um, you know, eventually he gets elected to U.S. senator, and um, what's kind of interesting about that, and this is maybe the connection with more a more modern politics, um, he ends up um, jumping ship and leaving the Democrats in uh, 1948 to run on a third party ticket with Henry Wallace. And Henry Wallace, if you remember, had actually been part of Franklin Roosevelt's administration, but had reflected more of the left wing of the administration. And, uh, you know, part of this ends up, what, what happens is there's a reaction to uh, Harry Truman. When Harry Truman becomes the, the Democratic nominee, the left wing of the party um, is upset about this. And at least some of them split off and formed this new, quote unquote, progressive party. Um, there had been progressive parties before, but this was sort of the modern incarnation of it. And, um, you know, they run a, a somewhat successful third party campaign. One of the things they do when they eventually go to a national convention, which they're kind of creating from the ground up, is they have uh, they hire on this group called People's Songs, which includes a lot of very left wing folk singers, um, including Pete Sing Seeger and Woody Guthrie and 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 uh, and Josh White, and probably if you're kind of familiar with 1960s folk music or you, you definitely kind of recognize these figures. And they uh, not only do they go out on the campaign trail and sometimes perform with Taylor as he ends up being the vice presidential candidate for the progressive ticket working with Henry Wallace, um, you know, um, but they produce one of the most musical conventions, you know, in the history of American politics um, because there's, they're constantly kind of trouting out different performers and, Eventually, Taylor himself ends up singing with his family um, as he kind of accepts the final Progressive Party nomination as the vice presidential candidate. Um, and I think that sets the scene in some ways for, you know, if we move ahead to 1952, where the parties are starting to think about television and the way that music is important in kind of the creating drama and Getting a, creating a sense of solidarity among convention goers and that sort of thing. And so 
the parties become more and more cognizant of the use of music. And so it's, it's kind of a very modern, you know, um, thing that he's doing, you know, back in 1948. So. Um, so do you see other kind of consistent um, threads through those hundred plus years that you're looking at in terms of um, the kinds of politics that country music is sort of pulled in to support. I mean, you've talked about, you know, so for instance, it's unusual that Taylor was progressive perhaps, but he is an outsider candidate, which many of your other examples seem to have been in their time. Can you, are there other sorts of um, commonalities that you see? Well, I think definitely the outsider theme, you know, I think all of these candidates want to draw on that idea and that they are somehow outsiders. And by associating themselves with the music that at least, you know, historically has kind of been uh, associated with uh, poorer white Southerners or, you know, uh, maybe working class people in, in the American West or Appalachia, right? Um, that by doing this, they are able to claim that idea that they are outsiders. They're at, they're at able to put some backing behind it and to seem to, to pre, at least present themselves as more authentic to their constituents. So, I mean, I think that's one thing. Yeah, definitely. That kind of runs throughout the large span, the larger span that I look at. I think one thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, the stereotype that country music is right wing conservative kind of parochial and, 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 you know, certainly this is something that I, it's still, you know, you'll hear political commentators talk about this today and maybe talk about, you know, we'll see how, as this, as the current election kind of develops, um, how, you know, candidates are linking themselves with country music endorsements and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes there's a tendency to say, well, it wasn't always this way because there were left-wing people like Glenn Taylor um, or there was, you know, the, the Roosevelt administration, there were numbers of numerous, you know, hillbilly bands that were supporting them in various ways. And there, there's some truth to that too. I do think though, it's, it's always been a really complicated mess <laughs> when you kind of look at country music and politics. There's certainly, it has been a long tradition of associating and using the music in kind of xenophobic or racist or, you know, at least with Henry Ford, anti-Semitic ways, uh, maybe to some degree also Tom Watson, one of the first figures I talk about in the book, who, by the way, starts out kind of really pushing um, at this idea of uh, more racial egalitarian society. I mean, part of it is that he, he cuts his teeth in 18, you know, 80s Georgia, where Afri this, is, this is the reconstruction or, po well, quote unquote, post reconstruction era. But in the county that he's in, in Georgia, African-Americans are still voting in large numbers as kind of part of that reconstruction change in society. They haven't been denied uh, the right to vote um, as they eventually will in most of these Southern states, right? So he has to reach out to them. He's, and in some ways his politics as a young um, congressman um, who uh, is, represents, at that point, the Populist Party, um, continues to kind of represent this more racial egalitarian politics. But he ends up, at the end of his life, becoming an ardent segregationist because he sees 
what's going on with his constituents and the fact that there is this major backlash and um, he wants to link himself with something that will get him elected. And in, in the twenties, he finally does. Um, after a long time of kind of being in the political wilderness, he gets elected um, to the U S Senate as a segregationist Democrat. So, um, you know, I think, I mean, part of what I want to say is uh, country music isn't by nature uh, necessarily um, connected with, um, you know, kind of uh, racial conservatism, racial conservatism or uh, racist politics. But there's been a pretty healthy history there where there have been connections. <laughs> and it's certainly it can be bent to represent or to to be associated with a variety of political ideologies, um, you know, kind of populism or or left wing kind of social democrat politics of of Taylor. At the same time, the the music can be used in ways that are you know that kind of reinforced kind of conservative order. So um, it's complicated. And that's part of, you know, I suppose that's the job. I'm a historian and that's part of our job is to say it's complicated. It's more complicated than that, right? Um, you know, sometimes I cringe every time there's a new piece that comes out about how country music connects with politics. I cringe a little bit <laughs> because there's often an oversimplification and people are not really taking the effort to really connect um, the the real long history here with with what they see you know in maybe uh, maybe a couple decades span of the connection between the music and and the kind of pol politics or politicians that are using it right so i think that i i guess that's the one thing if you know if you're going to go and you're going to write um a piece uh you know for a political you know online political magazine or some commentary about this i really urged that you think about this larger span because it's it's a lot more complicated than that. I do think that, um, you know, maybe it's something, if we want to talk about like modern politics, I think it's something that liberals and and uh, social democrats and, and people of the left or even kind of left center, more moderates need to think about. Maybe they haven't very effectively. Maybe even just the kinds of messages or rhetoric coming out of country music. Um, I think at times they've they've kind of there there is a there is some truth to the idea that they've sort of lost that message. Um, I don't on the other hand think that necessarily, you know, every kind of top 40 country performer that comes out and uh, makes political statements necessarily have to always line up with what, uh, you know, maybe the Republican Party or a more conservative economic or, or more uh, social conservative viewpoint. It's not necessarily always true. I mean, it certainly is, you know, there certainly are many instances, but it's not always true. So, um, you know, I think that I think looking at the larger span is something that's really helpful for thinking that through. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, um, you point out that post 9-11, maybe we'll go that for, um, just just in this century, um, there's certainly plenty of um, uh, musicians who have made 
politicized songs or who have, or in the case of Dixie Chicks, really paid the price for really what was almost an offhand comment by Natalie Maines about George Bush. And it changed their career forever, that, you know, 20 seconds of commentary. Um, But then you also have a lot of, um, as you said, a lot of musicians that are making very conservative sort of statements in their music that, you know, are very, very political, have a lot of sort of Christian um, uh, spiritual beliefs layered on top of it related to to sort of American patriotism. So you have this sort of politicized atmosphere, at least in some song makers and some songs. But on the other hand, I, I don't I you don't see quite as much of that close relationship that you saw um, in earlier politicians where they're not necessarily playing country music. They're not uh, touting, um, you know, they're not necessarily bringing country bands along with them to play before a, a, um, a rally or something. Why do you think there's been a little bit less um, uh, connection there in the actual politicking, the, the retail politics that politicians have to do to get elected and country music, even though the, the music itself is sometimes quite politicized? Well, one thing I think, you know, and this is, I'm, I'm not the first one to point this out, but since the 1970s, um, political campaigns, especially kind of, you know, uh, mainstream presidential political campaigns, have really made an effort to increasingly use canned music. So using pre-recorded music, usually hit songs, um, not as in earlier ages, maybe looking for a slogan song that's created specifically for the candidate, right? Um, and so there were country musicians who did this sort of thing, you know, um, going back to the fifties and sixties. Um, and, um, I think that, you know, you're right. I think that there, maybe there's, uh, we don't see them campaigning with their own bands, although there are always these cases, you know, you've got in Texas, for instance, um, you have a kinky Friedman who ran for governor and really kind of used, and he did perform, occasionally on the campaign trail he told a lot of jokes too um you know who really does come from this older tradition of the country music politician of you know kind of uh trading political or or, uh trading political bards barbs with um you know his country music references and in his case a lot of comedy um so, and then you had, for instance, uh, Rob Quist, who was running, who ran for Congress, who was uh, kind of came out of the singing cowboy tradition as well in the last 10 years. Um, but I think you're right. I think part of it, too, is that, you know, we've had, uh, we have a lot of, uh, you know, as the kind of American uh, uh, music listening audience has developed, um, there is, you know, certainly there's been this this situation where, um, various genres are kind of serving more and more kind of niche audiences, right? Smaller audiences that are, you know, kind of true, or at least see themselves as kind of true to the the music, the musical styles that that they appreciate, and may not necessarily be listening or even knowledge much knowledgeable at all about other kinds of styles. And that's, you know, partly I suppose a product of the you know rise of the internet as a vehicle of delivery of the music and giving a lot more choices to people then you know we don't have a a monoculture anymore where we all listen to the same am or fm radio stations necessarily and um you know so there's definitely sort of that situation going on but 
I think you've also got, um, I think that at times, I think, you know, there are elements of the country music campaign that I see kind of getting absorbed into uh, some of the modern figures. And I don't know if it's a conscious decision, but, you know, a lot of things that uh, Trump said in 2016 remind me a lot of these country music politicians. And I talk about that in my final chapter. Um, you know, there's there's clear analogies, for instance, between, uh, you know, his use of drain the swamp, which may, you know, which I understand probably came from Mussolini. <laughs> but it, my sense is I'm not sure if that's where he got it from or, or he even was fully, you know, knowledgeable of that. But it certainly connects with what I see happening in the 40s with um, Big Jim Folsom in Alabama, who talks about, you know, he goes around with a, a broom and a with a with a broom and a uh, or a mop and a in a bucket. And and after his band is playing, stands up and talks about how he's going to sweep the Capitol clean. Right. And this kind of idea of transforming the center of politics into something that is not so corrupt anymore. And so, you know, I think there's that interesting kind of style of rhetoric that that seems to live on in, in different ways in modern politics. So, you know, I don't know. It'd be interesting to kind of see. There certainly still are, you know, there's, you know, we, we can talk about the Willie Nelson endorsement, which in recent years has, you know, been important to liberal candidates. And that'll be, I don't know, I don't, I guess Willie Nelson hasn't really come out in the current campaign to really, you know, make a stance one way or another about any of the candidates. Um, But, um, you know, certainly in the past, he has supported a number of of at least kind of left of center Democrats. Um, He's also supported people like Ross Perot and Ralph Nader, who come to, from more of a third party tradition, kind of opposing, you know, the kind of mainstream political machines and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I think it'd, it'd be interesting to kind of see what happens if it's just, I mean, one thing is maybe, maybe the rhetoric has been sort of absorbed and the music is easily accessible so you can play it on the campaign trail. You know, there's always this issue occasionally of uh, performers um being upset at candidates for playing their songs when they didn't necessarily have the permission to use it within the context of the political campaign message, where maybe they disagree with the candidate and are upset that their music is being used to support that candidate. I think that's something that's going to continue. I don't, I don't see any disruption in that. Um, You know, I think, I don't know. It's, I think, I think it's interesting to kind of think this through and, I mean, what's interesting too, and this maybe you know talks about some of what I was talking about earlier. What is thinking through how, um, you know, one of the things actually you mentioned at one point about my next project. One of the things I'd like to do is write a book that kind of takes up where my second to last chapter ends, um, which really is about the mid nineteen seventies. And um, maybe what I would like to do is is trace through some of the things in my final chapter which really go you know my final chapter is kind of a roundup of what's going on uh, in the connections between country and music politics between 1974 and the present which is a pretty long time period and i think there's a lot more in that i really want to get more into the dixie chicks controversy for instance and and talk more about that but i mean one one of the outgrowths of that particular issue of you know when the dixie chicks um criticize 
uh, George Bush, you know, from um, a, a performance in 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 London, um, is you know during the beginnings of the Gulf War, um, is that you know it um, actually the Iraq War. Sorry, I'm getting my wars wrong here. Um, they um, you know, there's a backlash in the industry and there are radio networks that refuse to play the Dixie Chicks for a period of time. And there is a number of ways in which they're kind of blacklisted. And, you know, other scholars have kind of documented that. But what's interesting, what I find interesting is the long period of silence after that. And I think only recently this has really come to the public eye in the sense that you have Taylor Swift, who is a former, you know, sort of mainstream country music performer who's really crossed over into pop and other genres. Um, But coming out and saying that her her main issue with not taking a stance on politics up until, you know, six months ago, her main issue was that she had always been told that if you make too much of a political stance, that you will get Dixie chicked. And, you know, I think that that there is definitely this kind of sense of self-censorship that comes out of that experience that a lot of the industry is, you know, aware of. It doesn't mean that the performers have stopped taking political stances. I think what's interesting is that you have people on the more rootsier edges of the genre who, uh, Rodney Crowell, for instance, who have come out more in support of a kind of liberal politics and then you have the kind of more mainstream kind of top 40 country performers who are who often have come out, not always, but often come out in support of more conservative or Republican politicians. So, I mean, I think there's definitely those two those two trends are still there. And, um, you know, I do think probably if you're talking about impact on audiences, the top 40 performers are probably having a little more sway than these kind of Americana or kind of, you know, uh, artists who are more on the roots or your edges of the genre, um, you know, do in kind of swaying liberal audiences. So, um, but yeah, it's, you know, I think there's still, there are still a lot of ways in which country music connects with the modern political world. Definitely. Well, this has been a fantastic talk, and I'm definitely going to be paying attention to uh, what goes on with country music and this particular uh, political campaign with a different uh, different eye because I've read this book. So um, I thank you so much for joining us. And um, once again, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is the New Books and Music podcast, um, uh, part of the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Peter LaChapelle about his book, I'd Fight the World, a political history of all-time hillbilly and country music. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.